Scripture reading this morning will be from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. That can be found on page 16 in the Pew Bible. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Father, we thank you for the gospel that we've just heard from the word of Christ from Genesis chapter 22. We thank you that it's our grace, our privilege in this moment to gather as brothers and sisters and to hear the voice of Christ from the word of Christ. I pray that this would be for us a very holy moment. I pray that it would be for those of us who are outside of Christ. I pray it would be the day of salvation. And I pray that for those of us who profess faith in the Lord and who profess faith genuinely, that you would use this time to move us along in Christ-likeness, ever continuing your work to 
restore the image of God on us and in us. So please, by your Holy Spirit, be my helper. I'm not sufficient for these things at all. So please help me by your Spirit. And please give ears to hear for all of us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're kicking off our sermon series in the book of Genesis. And it's worth asking, what is the book of Genesis about? Is it about creation mainly? As I was toying with some ideas for the subtitle of the sermon series, I eventually landed on man's ruin, God's rescue. And it seems like naming a child came easier sometimes than naming sermon series. I just said to Linda, can we just call it the book of Genesis? I guess not. All right. Um, but I saw some churches that had preached on Genesis, and they, they called their sermon series, In the Beginning. Is that primarily why Genesis was written, to give us an account of the origin of creation? Maybe Genesis is designed to get our minds right about gender and sexuality. Those are hot-button issues in our world today. How many genders are there, people are asking? Can genders change? Can I marry whomever I please? What is a woman? That's a question that both Supreme Court Justice nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson and former President Donald Trump have refused to answer. But is Genesis about gender and sexuality primarily? Is that what Genesis is about? Maybe Genesis is about Noah and the flood. There's a lot of great songs about that. The Lord told Noah to build an arky, arky. He also told him to build it out of gopher, barky, barky, the verse continues. <laughs> Lots of questions about what our world looks like today that people argue can be answered by a belief in the Bible's flood account, but is Genesis about Noah and the flood primarily, or, or the Tower of Babel, or whatever in the world those guys at the beginning of Genesis 6 are? What is the book of Genesis about? Do you know? You want to know? Do you want to know why you ought to want to know? <laughs> Do you want to know how what the book of Genesis is about actually affects your Sunday afternoon and your Monday morning and your school day students and your work day and your laundry doing and your supper fixing? Well, we're going to begin answering those questions from the Word together today. But I hope, first, that you have handy a sermon outline. If you don't, you can find one online at cmcvermont.org gather. And I want to direct your attention to the back of the sermon outline to what I'm calling the introduction to the book of Genesis. That's the side that has the, the outline of the whole book at the bottom. And to orient you to the book on this first sermon in our series, let's quickly consider the background of Genesis. The Bible says that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. 
It doesn't say that in Genesis, but it does say that in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, where Jesus says to his disciples on the day of his resurrection, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, how does that help us conclude that Moses wrote Genesis? Well, Jesus' disciples, who were Jewish, knew what the Lord was saying when he used the phrase, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's a way that Jews would have referred to the whole of what we call the Old Testament. And Jews broke down the Old Testament, their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Psalms is the biggest part of that, so sometimes that just gets called the Psalms. The law that Jesus refers to is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets are what we call the major and minor prophets, and they add Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. And then you have the writings, which are the rest of the Old Testament. But note again from Luke 24 what Jesus calls the first five books of the Bible, the first of which is Genesis. He calls those books the Law of Moses. Jesus said Moses wrote Genesis. And so did every Jew and every Christian until about 200 years ago when some German scholars started coming up with what I regard to be some really zany theories about the composition of the first five books of the Old Testament. But Jesus said Moses wrote Genesis, and as a rule of thumb, when Jesus gives his position on something, adopt the same position, <laughs> and you'll be just fine. Well, when did Moses write Genesis? Well, you can see here, I date the writing of Genesis and the other books of Moses, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to around 1446 B.C. If you're familiar with that conversation, that means I take an early date for the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. The date of composition doesn't affect any exegesis in Genesis by my recollection, but it might just be helpful to you as a data point to know roughly when in the life of the nation of Israel Genesis was written. So... 1446 is about 450 years before David ruled. It's about 700 years before Isaiah had his prophetic ministry. It's about 1,500 years, of course, before the Lord Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. And then that takes us to the theme of the book of Genesis. What is Genesis about? As I've said, there's a lot of really important stuff in Genesis. The creation of the universe the creation of the first humans, the establishment of gender and of God's design for sexuality and marriage. There's a lot of memorable, fascinating stories, but Genesis isn't primarily about any of those things, as interesting as they all are, as relevant as they all are to our current cultural moment. What is Genesis about? Why did God the Holy Spirit inspire Moses to write this book? My best attempt at answering that question is found as the theme that I've given you as the introduction here in, uh, to the, in the introduction to the book of Genesis and, and at the top of this morning's sermon outline. Genesis is about the fact that the Lord promised that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, would crush the serpent's head and be the fountainhead of a great nation. That seed is the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his life, death, 
and resurrection undoes the curse of sin and brings rest and blessing to his people. Now the outline that I give you in the continuation of that introduction unpacks that theme. I was helped by Pastor Wes's outline um, from his work in the book of Genesis. And you'll see from the sermon outline, if you turn over now to the other page, the other side of that page, you'll see from the sermon outline that in large measure, I think the idea of identifying the line of the seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis 3.15, which we'll look at in just a moment, that's a dominating structure for the book of Genesis. After the Lord created his very good creation in chapters 1 and 2, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that the very first people, Adam and Eve, transgressed God's plain command. That is, they sinned. And then Adam's sin brought death and ruin and cursedness onto Adam and Eve themselves and onto the whole of creation. But a thrill of hope pierced the night of sin and death and ruin in the promise of the seed of the woman. A promise that the Lord gave to Adam and Eve, even amid the curse that he pronounced on the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God. And then after that, throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, as every new character is introduced, we who read Genesis are to be looking for the one who's going to be the seed of the woman. When someone new is introduced, we're meant to read and ask, who's it going to be? Is he the one? Is it him? And while the seed of the woman never explicitly gets identified in Genesis, Moses certainly prepares the way for him. Moses helps us to see from whose line that seed isn't going to come and from whose line he will come. And Moses does that by means of the lines that he gives the most attention to in this book. Now, how does all of that sort of play out in Genesis? Look at Roman numeral 2 in my sermon outline, what I'm calling man's ruin. In chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, God forms... And he fills creation. We're going to begin focusing on that in particular next week, Lord willing. First, he forms the heavens. Then he forms the waters. Then he forms the land. Then he fills the heavens with a sun and moon and stars. And then he fills the waters with fish and other sea creatures. And then he fills the land with animals. And then with the only creation that bears God's image, mankind, male and female. And then God sees all that he made, and he concludes, it's very good. And then God rests from his work, a rest that's going to be a paradigm for the rest that his image bearers need and lose the rest that God himself sets out to win back for his people. In chapter 2, Moses zooms in on creation, focusing on the creation of Adam as the image bearer of God and focusing on God's mandate to Adam to exercise dominion, to exercise rule and reign over God's creation. In chapter 2, we hear God's command to Adam, God's command to Adam to eat freely from every tree in the garden where God placed the man. 
except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with the warning that on the day Adam eats of it, he will surely die. And then in chapter 3, Adam and his wife Eve break God's command. They eat fruit from the tree that God commanded Adam not to eat from. And that sin results in Adam and Eve's spiritual death. On the day you eat it, you will surely die. And it results in the spiritual death of all who would descend from Adam and Eve, which is all of us. And that sin results in a curse on the whole created order. I call it God's very good creation, ruined and cursed. Now there's a couple of things I mean when I'm talking about man's ruin. The first thing I mean by that phrase is the ruin that man brings onto creation. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that creation was subjected to futility. Creation is in bondage to corruption. Creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. Adam's sin ruined creation. You see it everywhere. Animals kill and are killed because of man's sin. Earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and monsoons and hurricanes and forest fires destroy because of man's sin. Your car, your roof breaks and rusts and rots and devolves. You don't just sit things down and watch them get better, do you? That doesn't happen anywhere. (laughs) If you don't believe that, just watch your pictures from 40 years ago (laughs) and then 30. No. Adam's sin ruined God's very good creation. And man's ruin also refers to the ruination of man. We die just like God said we would because of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, our relationships drift not toward harmony. Our relationships drift toward conflict. Because of Adam's sin and the Ruination for mankind that resulted. Our work is toilsome. The dominion that we're called to exercise over creation in every realm, agricultural and industrial and educational and domestic, only comes by the sweat of our brow and by creation pushing back against us. Creation resists our exercising that dominion at every turn. Man's ruin involves coming into this world exiled from God's presence, being a slave to sin, being a citizen of Satan's domain, all because of the ruination brought to mankind because of Adam's sin. It's all-encompassing man's ruin. There isn't a part of you, mind, or body, or a part of all of creation that hasn't been touched by the ruin that came from Adam's sin. But just as soon as Adam's sin resulted in God's 
very good creation being plunged into a cursed state, God immediately announces a promise in the context of a curse. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is the very first book of the Bible. The Bible's books are broken up by chapters, that's the big numbers, and then by verses, those are the small numbers. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles we have, and you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take that pew Bible and to have it as, the, as your own Bible. Genesis chapter 3, and look with me beginning at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, and you're like, why is God talking to a snake? It's because... The Bible tells us earlier in Genesis chapter 3 that a serpent came and tempted Eve and Adam to sin against God. The rest of the Bible sheds light on that account and tells us that this serpent is a personification and embodiment of Satan, the devil, the enemy of God and of his people. And so God says to the serpent, because you have done this, because you've caused my image bearers to be tempted to sin against me, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then God pronounces this curse on the serpent. I will put enmity, hatred between you And between the woman, between your offspring or seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.14 is an announcement of a curse on the serpent, on Satan. And so is Genesis 3.15. But you have to understand Genesis 3.15, if I can use a paradoxical phrase, as a, as a blessed curse, because it's a curse on the serpent and those who are in league with him by virtue of not having faith in Christ. But it's a blessing to the woman and to the seed who will come from her. Do you see what's going on here? No sooner did Adam sin throw God's very good creation back into chaos, but the Lord begins making good on his promise to bring the seed of the woman who would be the one from whom a great multitude, a great nation would come. God promises rescue, and he immediately embarks on that rescue. Look with me at what I'm calling God's rescue in your sermon outline. We've talked in brief about how Genesis chronicles man's ruin. Of course, we're going to linger on these things more as we preach these texts. But I want you to see how this seed idea, the seed of the woman that's introduced in Genesis 3.15, it's the basis for understanding how it is that God rescues mankind and indeed all creation from the ruination of man's sin. So Adam and Eve hear God's promise. He just pronounced it. He pronounced it to the serpent, but Adam and Eve are there. They hear what God's saying, and they hear the promise of the seed of the woman, and they begin looking for who that's going to be because they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They get kicked out of God's presence because of their sin, and they know that they want to be back in God's presence. They know that they want to dwell with him again. So Adam and Eve are believing the promise that God made, and they're beginning to look for this promised seed. Who will be the seed of the woman? Eve seems to think, And it might be her and Adam's firstborn son, 
Cain, who's given to Adam and Eve at the beginning of chapter 4. She receives Cain as a help from the Lord. But Cain doesn't turn out to be the promised one. He turns out to be a murderer. And the younger brother that Cain murders, Abel, he's not the promised seed. He's killed before he can do very much. But then at the end of chapter 4, God gives to Adam and Eve yet another son, Seth. And Seth, unlike godly Abel, lives long enough to have a seed of his own, Enosh. And beginning in chapter 5, do you see it with me? Go to Genesis chapter 5. Beginning in chapter 5, we see the generations of Adam that go from Adam to Seth to Enosh and so on. Now, this phrase that you find in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam, is an all-important phrase in the book of Genesis. That phrase, or something very like it, happens ten times. And I think these references to generations help us to arrive at an organizing structure for Genesis. As we go through this book, I want you to have your eyes peeled and your ears open for when you see a phrase like this. Because when there's somebody that Moses, who's writing the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when there's somebody that Moses wants us to focus our attention on, we're going to get a lot of information about their generations, their descendants, their seed. And likewise, when there's somebody who gets mentioned and their generations get mentioned and then quickly moved on from, That's Moses' clue to the reader that that person is not the one from whom the seed of the woman is eventually going to come. And so we see that it's Seth, not Cain, whose generations Moses wants us to see. Because eventually, as we see from the end of Genesis 5, from Seth eventually comes a man named Lamech. And from Lamech comes a man named Noah, whose name sounds like the Hebrew for rest. And Noah was given the name rest by his parents because ever since the curse, that's what humanity has been looking for. That's what we lost. In the curse, God pronounced toilsome labor on mankind. And more terribly, the spiritual, never ending but never succeeding exertion that the curse put on mankind. We're like Sisyphus, always trying to push the rock of being pleasing to God in our own efforts up the hill. And just when we think that this time, maybe we've made it, the rock comes back down. Humanity has been looking for rest. So those who believed God's promise in the garden, they were looking for the seed of the woman. They believed that seed would bring rest. And in the hope that Noah would be that rest, Lamech named him rest. Now Noah wasn't that rest. Though he pointed to that rest, as we'll see when we get to that section in Genesis. But Moses gives us, if you skip ahead to Genesis chapter 10, Noah's generations or seed. These are the generations of the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We get brief mentions of Japheth's descendants 
and Ham's descendants. But again, the seed of Noah that Moses wants us to be excited about most isn't Japheth, who's mentioned very quickly and moved on from, or Ham, who's mentioned very quickly and moved on from, who's even cursed. Instead, the one whom Moses wants us to be excited about is Shem, whose generations we see beginning in chapter 11. And from Shem's line eventually comes one named Terah, and from Terah's generations, also seen in Genesis chapter 11, comes one named Abram, later named Abraham. And the rest of Genesis is concerned with Abraham's seed. Because beginning in Genesis chapter 12, it's to Abraham and to his seed that God makes some absolutely astounding promises. God promises to Abraham that a great nation would descend from him. From an old man who's past his childbearing years, who's married to an old woman past her childbearing years, and they've never had a child. And God promises that Abraham's going to have a great name. That he would have land for his descendants as their everlasting possession. God promises that he himself, the Lord, would be Abraham's God. And that he would be the God of Abraham's people. And Abraham believes that promise. We see it in Genesis chapter 22 that was read earlier. Though Abraham tries to take its fulfillment into his own hands, which results in the birth of a son named Ishmael, whose generations we see covered in just seven verses in chapter 25. Moses tells us Ishmael's not the seed of Abraham to get excited about. No, the son of promise for Abraham and his wife Sarah is Isaac. Isaac's generations also begin in chapter 25, and they go on through the whole of the rest of the book of Genesis. And likewise for Isaac, one of his sons is in the line of promise, the line that would eventually bring about the seed of the woman. And one of Isaac's sons isn't. His son Esau, his firstborn, that's the one we'd be expected to to see be the blessed one by virtue of his birth order, but he isn't the blessed one. Esau's generations are found in Genesis 36, and then they're forgotten, except where Esau's descendants proved to be a thorn in Israel's side later on. No, it's Jacob, Isaac's son Jacob, whose descendants or seed Moses shows us that we're supposed to have our focus on because we see the generations of Jacob beginning in Genesis chapter 37. And then that line from Jacob dominates the rest of the book of Genesis until we get to the very end of Genesis when we see the blessings that Jacob pronounces to his sons. And I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. I'm wanting you to trace this promised seed idea. Because Moses wants you to trace this promised seed idea. So in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is pronouncing blessings on his son. And when Jacob pronounces a blessing on his son Judah in Genesis 49, Jacob says something very interesting, something that I think Moses means for us to read and to be alerted to. The blessing that Jacob pronounces on Judah is longer than any of his other sons except for his favorite son, Joseph. 
But look with me first at the first of Jacob's blessings of his sons, the blessing on Reuben, Genesis chapter 49, verse 3. Genesis 49, verse 3. Jacob's blessing his 12 sons. He's starting with Reuben. He says in verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Because of birth order, you'd expect that Reuben would receive the preeminent blessing, but he doesn't. In fact, Jacob says, you're not going to receive preeminence because Reuben was sexually involved with one of the women in his father Jacob's harem back in Genesis chapter 35. So Reuben shall not have preeminence. Instead, skip down to chapter 49 and pick it up at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Who among Jacob's seed, as we're looking for seed, is going to receive preeminence? Not Reuben. Jacob tells us it's Judah. Judah's brothers are going to praise him. Judah's going to conquer his enemies. Judah's descendants are going to be praised by the descendants of his brothers. Judah's compared to a lion. And Jacob says that Judah is going to have ongoing and universal rule. He says that the scepter, that's the sign of royal authority and power. The scepter and the ruler's staff won't depart from him. And he, really Judah's seed, will receive the tribute and the obedience of the nations. So now Moses has us on the edge of our seat. Because now we're looking. Okay, who's going to come from Judah? I've been seeing how the seed goes from, from Seth and then so on and so forth through Shem and Terah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Judah. And who's next? Who's going to be the seed of the woman? And then a few verses after this, Genesis is done. And you're like, wait a minute. What about Judah? Who is it from Judah's seed that we're to be looking for? Up till now in Genesis, Moses has been letting us know who we don't need to pay attention to as we look for the fulfillment of this promise of the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. Moses has been letting us know who isn't in the line of blessedness and promise, your Cains and Japheths and Hams and Ishmaels and Esau's, because when we're given their generations, it's the last we hear from them. And Moses has been letting us know which generations we're to be interested in. But when Moses writes in Genesis 37, these are the generations of Jacob. That's the 10th and final time that you find that construction in Genesis. And so you see these magnificent blessings that are pronounced on Judah. And the book of Genesis kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Who's going to descend from Judah? Who's the one who's going to cause Judah's line to be preeminent? 
Who's going to come from Judah's generations? Who's going to be the seed of Judah who's going to be a lion who reigns everlastingly and universally? Who? I read the answer to our children the other night after we had listened to Andrew Peterson's lovely song, Is He Worthy? The answer is found in Revelation chapter 5. Why don't you go with me there? It's the last book of the Bible. If you're late for any appointments today, you can see the pastor preached from Genesis to Revelation. (laughs) Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But we still don't really have the answer to our question yet, do we? Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Let's keep reading. Pick it up at verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Can you imagine this scene saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And now we know who it is that Moses is telling us to look for in Jacob's blessing on Judah. The one who's going to come from Judah's line is the one who descends from Judah's descendant, David. He's going to be the root of David. He's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. He's going to be one who was slain and with his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's going to be one who makes his people a kingdom and priests to God. And this lion from the tribe of Judah will cause his people to reign on the earth. Judah's lion is the lamb who was slain. Judah's lion is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abraham. He's ultimately the promised seed who would undo the curse of sin and overturn the works of the devilish serpent, Satan. And how is it that the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the seed of the woman, how is it that he would do that? The verse we read earlier, Genesis 3.15 says how. Remember in that verse, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The New Testament tells us exactly what that promise means. That promise means that one would come from Eve and Seth and Noah and Shem and Terah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, just like Matthew and Luke and Revelation say that Jesus did. And that promise in Genesis 3.15 means that though Satan and his seed would work to see Jesus killed on a cross, it's that very death that would result in life. For all of Jesus' people, it would result even in life and exaltation for Jesus himself because he was resurrected from the dead three days later and exalted to God's right hand and enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is bruised. The idea is crushed, attacked. His heel is bruised as he suffers on the cross as he suffers and bleeds for the sins of his people. But on the cross, Jesus crushed. He attacked Satan's head. He dealt the serpent, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, a death blow in the cross and the resurrection. As Revelation 5 says of the Lord Jesus, while he was on the cross shedding his blood, he was ransoming people from God, for God. He was freeing us from death and hell, ransoming us from our slavery to sin, freeing us from the domain of darkness because he was tasting death and hell for us, because he was suffering the penalty of the one who is a slave to sin and to the devil because he was experiencing in his body the punishment of one who is a citizen of the domain of darkness. That's how he ransomed us. And having done that, and having satisfied the Father's righteous wrath in his own body with his own precious blood, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the seed of the woman, saved us. He caused our sins to be forgiven. He caused our transgressions to be removed. He caused our iniquities to be remembered against us by God no more. Because the Father accounted to his Son our sin, we have accounted to us his Son's righteousness. Now we don't get what our sins deserve. Brother and sister, You don't get from God what your sins deserve. Hallelujah. We enjoy the Father's unfailing, unconditional, never-ending, never-diminishing love and acceptance and favor and joy because of his Son. And when you consider 
what we did in Adam in the garden and what our sin caused? Do you see the mercy and the grace and the love in what I'm telling you, brother and sister? We had sinned in Adam. You had sinned in Adam. We had broken God's law in Adam. We heard what God said, and then we decided, I have a better way. We had been lovingly formed in his image like nothing else in all creation. He dwelled with us in paradise. He gave our father Adam a creation to oversee and to enjoy and to be fed by and to delight in with God, with him in his presence. And in Adam, we all said, that's not enough for us. And to the people who said that and who did that to him, what did God do? Did he crush us under his thumb like he would have been absolutely just to do? No, he announced, I'm going to send the seed of the woman, my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to suffer and he's going to die to undo what you've done so that you won't die forever. He's going to get what he doesn't deserve so that you don't get what you do deserve. In fact, so that you get what he deserves, an inheritance, a fellowship with God in a perfect creation. That's what Genesis is about, and it's on every page. The Lord promised that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, would crush the serpent's head and be the fountainhead of a great nation. And that seed is the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his life and death and resurrection undoes the curse of sin and brings blessing and rest to his people. That's what Genesis is about. And so as we get started this morning in our walk through Genesis, how can we make application of the overall message of this book? Well, first I want to say to you who are unbelievers, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you arrive here this morning not a Christian, I'm saying please come to Jesus. The book of Genesis paints a very binary picture. It's this or it's that. We don't really like to traffic in binaries in our world anymore. But in Genesis, that's what we have. You're either in the godly line or you're in the line that's called the seed of the serpent, the devil. Now, I understand that has the potential to be offensive to you or upsetting to you, and I don't have it as my aim to offend you or to upset you. I do have it as my aim to love you and to be kind to you and to serve you. And so you ought to know that Jesus says to you who are not believers that you were born as those among the serpent seed, as all humanity was, and if you never trust in Christ to save you, you will die as among those who are the serpent's seed. The serpent who is the devil, Satan. And you will suffer eternally. Suffer eternally as the righteous payment from God for your sin. And so what's to be done, you who are outside of Christ? Acknowledge your sinfulness. Acknowledge your need for him. Acknowledge that your sins are ultimately against the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who created you. 
Acknowledge that your sins need to be forgiven. Acknowledge that you need to be made clean. You need a new heart. That is why God crushed his son on the cross to give sinners just like you a new heart, to cause sinners like you to be clean. Don't remain in your sin. Don't remain outside of Christ. Don't remain in the line of the seed of the serpent. Come to Christ. Come. You can come today. He'll save you from your sin. He'll cause you to be among his people. He'll cause you to begin in this life enjoying blessings like having eternal life and having the guilt and stain of your sin removed from you forever. And you'll live beginning now with the hope of eternal life in the new heavens and new earth with Christ and with all of his people. He'll cause you to have peace with God and with all who belong to God by faith in Jesus. To my brothers and sisters, I want to think with you about, about why it ought to matter that Jesus is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. You're like, this guy's talking a lot about seed today. What's he going on about? As Paul makes plain in Galatians chapter 3, Jesus is the one who's Abraham's seed. He's the one to whom the Abrahamic covenant promises that God makes in Genesis. He's the one to whom they ultimately apply. And so you ask, what's that got to do with me? And I was thinking about this. Imagine that someone takes a, a sunflower seed that's ready to be planted. And you put that sunflower seed in a beautiful garden where there's lots of warm sun and an expert gardener who lovingly tends the soil that that sunflower seed is planted in. What a, what a great scenario for that seed. What a blessed seed, we might say. So the seed gets planted and it gets watered and it gets nourished by having been planted where there's lots of really warm sun. And one day, that seed becomes a shoot that breaks through the ground. And that shoot becomes taller and taller and begins to grow some leaves. And then before long, what do you know? Some beautiful, brilliant yellow petals are formed. And then that sunflower's head starts to get heavy because while it's been growing, what's been growing in it? Some really heavy seeds, countless seeds, and every one of those seeds enjoys what the first seed enjoyed, don't they? Being planted in a beautiful garden, enjoying a warm sun, getting watered well, and getting ten, uh, tended with care and precision and nurturing by a master gardener. It's because all those seeds were, in a sense, in that first seed. And they enjoy all the same privileges and blessings that that seed enjoys. What I'm trying to illustrate with that is that's why it ought to excite you that Jesus is the seed of the woman. That's why it matters to you that Jesus is the seed of the woman. Because what Jesus enjoys by virtue of ultimately being the one to whom the promises to Abraham apply, we all enjoy those blessings if we're in him. We enjoy the promise of eternal life in a land that's renewed from the curse of sin. 
We enjoy the hope of once again serving as Jesus' vice regents over all creation as we exercise godly dominion. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's going to exercise that authority in part through his people eternally. Because we're in the seed of the woman, we enjoy his blessings like fellowship with God. We enjoy his loving fellowship with all of his people. Our brother Tim testified to that earlier, a foretaste of what it will mean to love each other perfectly in the age to come. We get to experience the blessing of bearing his image through a restored cosmic universal temple for all eternity. The blessings never end. The blessings that pertain to him are ours because we're in him. And all of that is what you have to look forward to, believer. What the first Adam lost, the second Adam, Christ won back for his people. And we've already begun to experience an installment of those blessings, haven't we? We already possess eternal life now and the forgiveness of sins now and the fellowship with God and his people now. And even we experience something of an exercise of his dominion as we herald the gospel and we see the kingdom advance as more and more souls repent and believe the gospel. And so, in response to the sadnesses that you come here with today, Sadnesses may be brought on by your sin or by the sins of others. Sadnesses brought on by hard circumstances that you're facing. In response to discouragements or frustrations. In response to the hard situations in your life that make you uneasy unsettled or anxious in response to the things that tend to make you a little panicky or depressed or angry or grumpy in response to seeing that you've been setting your eyes on lesser things and on worthless things and that you're in need of setting your eyes on things above where Christ dwells. In response to all of these things, remember that you are in the seed of the woman if you have faith in Christ. And so the blessings that he enjoys, we enjoy through him. In response to all these things, set your hope and your mind and your gaze on the day when the seed of the woman is going to return and restore this creation and share with his people the fulfillment of all God's promises in the fullest sense of those promises. And be sure that this is going to happen. Don't doubt it. Genesis is saying to you over and over and over, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, he's coming. Keep looking for him. He's coming. And by the time Moses had died, he hadn't come. But now he has. God has kept his promise. He has sent the seed of the woman to crush Satan's head in the cross and in the empty tomb. He's kept his promise to send his son the first time. And you can be sure, therefore, that he'll keep his promise to send his son again. Set your hope fully on that day. And think on the blessings that will be brought to you when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pray. Father, we...
thank you for the Lord Jesus. We're mindful that we don't thank you as we ought to. We're not as overjoyed as we ought to be. We still see and even feel and think through a glass dimly. So please help us. Please help us to employ this antidote to our discouragements and our despairs, to our frustrators, to the things that would make us uneasy. Help us to remember that if we're in Christ, his blessings are ours. He's come to undo the curse, to rescue us and to bring us back to you. We thank you for him. And we pray in his name. Amen.